Well, today we begin our series to the book of Exodus, which can be found on page 45 of the Black Pew Bibles there in front of you, if you're using one of those Bibles. I invite you to turn there with me right now. Exodus is one of the most popular books and accounts in the Bible, and we know that. Just, just think about how the story of the Exodus has made its way into popular culture. Some of you, when you think of Exodus, you think of Christian Bale. And Gods and Kings and my generation thinks of Disney's The Prince of Egypt. And others of you might think of the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston and Yul Brenner. The fact that Exodus has been made into major motion pictures is evidence that the story, at the very least, at the very least, presents a compelling narrative of the Hebrews' escape out of slavery to the Egyptians. But let's be clear, this is not just This is not just an account of the escape of the oppressed Hebrew people, but an account that teaches people about God's determination to fulfill his promises and form for himself a new people in holiness. It is about God's determination to fulfill his promises and form for himself a new people in holiness. So over the next couple of months, we'll be going through the book of Exodus, which was mostly written by Moses, sometime after the exodus from Egypt, which many scholars date to around 1500 BC. And as we go through this on Sunday mornings, I hope that, uh, you know, week after week, as you see there in the bulletin, you'll see the next passage coming up for next week. I hope that you just go ahead and read the section that's going to be coming up next week. It's chapters three and four. So that way you can actually go ahead and read through all of the book of Exodus over the next couple of months. To give you a big picture overview of the book, it can be divided into three sections. The first Concern chapters 1 to 18. Please write this down. It'll be helpful for you as you uh, read through the book on your own. God saves Israel from Egyptian bondage. God saves Israel from Egyptian bondage. Chapters 1 to 18. And this really is the exodus. Them leaving Egypt where God delivers his people. Secondly, God then gives Israel his law. So uh, this can be found in chapters 19 to 24. So after God delivers his people out of Egypt, he then forms them. And naturally, as he's making them into a people and a nation, he tells them how exactly they are to live with one another. And there he gives them the law and how to live for his glory there. And then third, God commands Israel to build the tabernacle. Chapters 25 to 40, God commands Israel to build the tabernacle. So, you know, the second point there, he gives them the law. The question then is what happens if, if they break the law? Well, isn't it wonderful that God then provides a way to deal with them as they breach the law. This is gracious provision. Then he shows them that he's a God who desires to meet with his people. Today we begin looking at the first point, God saves Israel from Egyptian bondage. And from our passage, Exodus chapters 1 and 2, we see once again God's determination to fulfill his promises and form for himself a new people in holiness. So let's look at point number one, Israel's expansion. Israel's expansion. If you're taking notes, this is point number one. If you look there in the book of Exodus chapter one, you see that Moses records the names of Israel's sons that had sojourned down. They had left Canaan and gone into Egypt. Look there from chapter one, verse one. It says there, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. 
Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. For the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Here we have an instant connection to the book of Genesis. And it's a connection not in the sense of an exact timeline, but in the sense of the next stage in God's plan of salvation. If you remember from Genesis, which we finished a handful of months ago, God had brought Israel, who was also called Jacob, down to Egypt, he and all of his family members. And there was a famine in the land of Canaan, and God brought relief for Jacob and his family by bringing them down to Egypt. And through a series of very sinful and unfortunate events, Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob, had gone there earlier and eventually, God and his providence had, uh, had uh, through Joseph, brought down Israel, his father, and all of his family under the, the protection there of Egypt. If you go back to Genesis chapter 46, go ahead and turn there that now. Just turn left a few pages to Genesis chapter 46. You see here an account of Jacob leaving Beersheba there in verse 5, and then, and then all of his sons, and all of the little ones, and all of the wives, and all of the wagons, everything. And they eventually head, they, they make their way down there to Egypt. And this in chapter 46 is basically an expansion of all of the names and the families that we just saw in Exodus chapter 1. So there you see the connection here. Uh, the main point there in, in 46.27, you have a summary, and all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Same thing as Exodus chapter 1, verse 5. So where Genesis leaves off, Exodus then picks up. There's a trajectory here regarding the growth of the people of God, the expansion of Israel. In Genesis chapter 12, God starts off with one man, Abraham. And from Abraham to then the next generation of Isaac to then the next generation of Jacob, God's people are now 70 as you see there at the end of Genesis, there in chapter 46. But then in verse 7 of Exodus chapter 1, it says there that there's even a greater growth. From the one went to 70, from the 70 went to the many. The land of Egypt was filled with the Hebrew people. They were fruitful, they increased greatly, they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. This trajectory of the growth, this expansion of the people of Israel was expected, wasn't it? All the way back in Exodus chapter 12, or sorry, Genesis chapter 12. Because God had given the promise that he would grow his people into a nation. Just as many as the stars were in the sky, as many sand granules is on the beaches of the sand. There God was going to grow his people. Take the one into the 70, take the 70 into a countless multitude. The blossoming of the people is part of God's threefold blessing to Abraham found throughout Genesis Promise number one, God would make from Abraham a people or nation. He says there, you will become a great nation. Promise number two, God then would bring them into a land. The land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. It would be a fruitful land. And then promise three, one of Abraham's line would be a blessing to the world, which ultimately, as we know from Galatians, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, whose salvation goes to the end of the world. So in the beginning of Exodus here, they are a great people. So promise one is fulfilled. The one became the 70, the 70 became a multitude. But then we're still left with the issue of promise number two, right? They're not even in their land. They're in the land of Egypt. And, and we know from Genesis that many bad things happen in the land of Egypt. I mean, without doubt, 
God had brought them down there for protection. And over 400 years, according to Exodus chapter 12, over 400 years goes by, and then now there's this multitude. But we're still left wondering, well, when are they going to go back to the land of promise? Because they are still foreigners in a foreign land. So this leaves us, as we read this account, looking forward to the fulfillment of promise number two, where they go back into the land, and then also promise number three, which ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. If you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, or if you are new to Christianity, all this talk about forming a new people, you know, makes us wonder what what exactly happened to the old people. What exactly happened to the first people? To answer that question, the answer is that the reason why God moved on to form a new people in His grace was because the first people sinned against Him. God had already created a people in His likeness. God had already created a people intended to go towards building a nation to show forth his image and his character. They were to experience all of the blessings of being children of God. And as they were to interact with one another, they were to display the marvels of his grace. Now, at that moment, when Adam and Eve had sinned against God, declaring to be God for themselves, they, after they had rejected all of, his own plan, all of God's plans for them, God could have given them over to their own sin and he would have been just to do this. He would have been righteous and holy to do that very thing. But instead in his grace and in his love, he drew near to those who had rebelled against him. And he did that with Abraham. He was a pagan man living in a pagan land and God nevertheless drew near to him and said, look, Abraham, I have a plan for you and I'm going to bless you. It was all by his grace, all by his love. He establishes his covenant with Abraham that involved those three promises that we looked at earlier. And that covenant then goes to Isaac, even though Abraham had sinned. And then the covenant with Abraham and Isaac then goes to Jacob, even though his fathers had sinned. So even while they compromise the covenant, God is faithful to ensure that his covenant continues with his chosen people. We have only to look at the end of Genesis to be reminded that Jacob had 12 sons, 11 of them had sold their brother into slavery. We see that sinfulness right there, still carrying on, but God nevertheless is faithful to fulfill all of his promises. And after all of those sinful events where Joseph is sold into slavery and bad things happen to them, eventually in, in God's kindness he brings his family down and he says there in Genesis fifty twenty, you meant it for evil, that is, You sold me into slavery. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So when we come to Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, even though God is not mentioned, we know very much that the expansion of the people of God is all of God's doing. As he's the one who made the promise, so he is the one who fulfills it. And here he is on the move to bring about the fulfillment of the covenant. God is determined to form a new people for himself. But from our passage, not all are happy with the great king's acting, the great king's plans for his people. This is point number two. Israel's oppression by the king. Israel's oppression by the king. Look at verse eight. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So you see, you see here that this new king had arisen, didn't know who J- 
Jacob, Joseph was. Joseph's generation too, as we saw from verse 7, they're long gone. Remember, over 400 years had already passed here. And so, the Pharaoh moves, makes a move against the people of God. Just really, he detects a threat, right? And then he wants to stamp out the people. And with that old generation, the previous generation is gone. The Egyptian cultural tie towards the Israelites becomes a landslide, right? Remember, once they experienced great favor from Pharaoh and the Egyptians, so much so that Joseph is brought up to position number two over all of the land. And he's overseer of everything. But here's a very different story. Once that gener- those generations have gone, here the king of Egypt sees the multiplying people of God, not as a blessing, as God sees it and intended them to be, but as a curse. You know, for us today, Christians, I find this to be a great reminder for us. You know, even in America's own history, Christians in America enjoyed some degree of appreciation for the public, just general appreciation. The general current in America, you know, even though Christians... Uh, might not have necessarily believed in Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. You know, they nevertheless, some Americans, most Americans, appreciated the morality that Christians lived by. The morality that came from Christ, that Christ had commanded. So naturally, the public respected Christians for their morality and even would fight with them over the same types of things. Christians very much experienced the, the, the position of being in the moral majority. And so the public would elect Christians into positions of service or place Christians in positions of leadership simply because of a shared understanding of morality. But friends, those days, it seems, are fading away or frankly have already gone. American morality is being flipped upside down as is evidenced in the discussions of abortion, marriage, sexuality, to name a few. Evangelical Christians are the new moral outlaws, to use Albert Muller's term, moral outlaws. And Exodus 1 reminds us, though, that God's people are a typically persecuted people. Persecution is a normal condition for the Christian in general. And in fact, Jesus says that persecution ought to be expected for those who claim the the name of Jesus Christ. I mean, all we need to do is just look at Jesus' life. To see what his followers are going to experience. And who are we to think that we are greater than our master to deserve no persecution in this life. Not only that though, we can turn to Jesus' teaching and see that persecution is for those who follow him. As long as America remains open to Christianity to whatever degree that it does. We really ought to appreciate whatever degree of peace we have. And then in fact capitalize on it. For the sake of Jesus Christ and his gospel, not for our own comfort, but for the glory of God. Whatever cultural shift is going on, the people of Israel were in a far greater one, weren't they? A far greater persecution. You look there in Exodus chapters 1, sorry, Exodus 1 verses 8, all the way down to 22. And you see there the persecution program that the Pharaoh comes up with. As he seeks to crush the people of Israel because of this perceived threat. And it is interesting, isn't it, that persecution, as, as people have noted, uh, it often isn't because of God. It oftentimes is not because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It often is because of something peripheral. 
Here, what Pharaoh does is he perceives a threat by the people of God and says that, whoa, one day when these other nations attack us, all of these Israelites are so many that they're going to rise up and form a treaty with the other people and then overthrow us. That's the threat. I think it's very similar here today. While there is certainly persecution because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it oftentimes arises out of issues that are peripheral to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it challenges us to see, will we really lay hold of the gospel as we are forced to grapple with, are we going to let hold of all of the so-called peripheral things, like abortion or like the sexuality that God has laid out and taught that is good in gender and marriage between a man and a woman. You look there at verse 8 and you see here what happens. Verse 8, 9, 10 and following here. Pharaoh devises two persecution plans. The first is to enslave the people of God. And here it's kind of like, let's demoralize the people by using them as slave labor. Hopefully that's going to neutralize the threat. But you look there what happens in verse number 12. You see the providence of God. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. They cannot be stamped out. You enslave them, they reproduce even more. And the Pharaoh, is, he doesn't even know what to do. The tactics here, his tactics just don't work. In fact, the way that verse 12 reads, the birth rate corresponds almost with the degree to which they are oppressed and afflicted. That's God working to fulfill his promises to Abraham. Nothing will stop them. Enslave them, they grow. And then as a result, look at what happens here. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Imagine Pharaoh having this little crisis going on in his own head. He wants to rule the land, but there's just babies. Babies and babies. There's more babies everywhere. They cannot be stopped. And what he fears is that these babies, the men in particular, the the boy babies in particular, are going to grow up one day and become warriors. Warriors who will rise up and fight against him. Unfortunately, Pharaoh intensifies the persecution of the people of Israel. He escalates. And his fear gives birth to even harsher tactics to oppress the Hebrew people. Look there. Just skim over verses 13 and 14. You'll see what happens. The Egyptians became ruthless and made the lives of the Hebrews bitter as slaves. That's persecution plan number one. This doesn't work. But Pharaoh then moves on not just to enslave them, but to wipe them out. So this is the second plan. He seeks to kill them. But his tactic is not to bring the sword on all of them. Remember, he wants to eliminate a future threat. There does even seem to be some sort of, I don't know, some sort of economic value in keeping the Israelites around. You know, slave labor, after all, it says there that they're building cities. Cities that eventually come to be known there as uh, Pithom and Ramses. So there's some sort of future threat that he seeks to eliminate. Look there at verses 15 to 17. So what Pharaoh does is go ahead and skim there. What he does is he calls the midwives and he commands the murder of all Hebrew male babies. Not the females, remember? Just the Hebrew male babies. Sadly, you can think of what happens with the human sinfulness of the heart. Those who enslave people, they do so for their own benefit to have, and they have their own plans for, let's say, the women slaves and the girls, whether it be selfish and without doubt ungodly, unrighteous and wicked desires for their own pleasure or the wicked desire for the expansion of their own people. So he seeks to have all the male babies killed. 
Plan B, though, doesn't work either. You see the sovereignty of God coming here to deliver the people, to see them grow. Look at verse 17. The midwives don't listen to him. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, draws near to the midwives and they don't listen to him. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Of course, Pharaoh is in his pattern of escalation, so he escalates here. And this quiet genocide that he alone commands all of a sudden becomes a lot louder. You see there in verse 22, before, I mean, he would go there to the Hebrew midwives. And there you're looking at two of them whose names are Shipra and Pua in verse 15. But in 22, look who he goes to there. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile but you shall let every daughter live. Friends, you see what's going on here. Consider the situation. You have an earthly king. Not just an earthly king. You have the most powerful man in the world who rules over the most powerful kingdom at the time, directly opposed to the one and only heavenly king who has already said what he will do. God is determined to grow his people, but Pharaoh is determined to wipe them out. This is not good for Pharaoh. If we read the book of Genesis, we know God's character at all. We know exactly what's going to happen. God is faithful to his promises, and no one can thwart his plans. You know, if you're visiting with us, and again, you know yourself not to be a Christian, did you know that the same stuff in Pharaoh's heart is the same stuff in our own hearts? We might not be commanding the murder and genocide of the Hebrew people, the wiping out of possibly hundreds of thousands of babies at this point in time. But nevertheless, the same stuff that's in Pharaoh's heart is the same stuff in our heart. As we know what God wants, we've heard that he is God. And in fact, the Bible says that even in creation, we know that God's glory is displayed and that he exists. But yet there's something in us because of sin that says we don't want him to be God. Just look at what we do with ourselves. Look at how you treat other people. God commands that we see everybody made in the image of God and then help them flourish in their lives. But we come along and say, no, you guys exist for my own glory. And in effect, we set ourselves up against the one and true sovereign king and creator of the world. This is the nature of sin. Adam and Eve experienced it and so do we. We seek autonomy. We seek to rebel against the one and only king. It's what Adam and Eve did, and it, in fact, is what we do, too. We don't want to submit to the law of God, and so we earn for ourselves just condemnation. And even though we don't want to identify with Pharaoh, yet we know that we, too, are hostile to God, as the Bible says, in need of salvation and deliverance. We need to hear this warning from this example of Pharaoh. We know exactly what's going to happen to him. Many of us have already seen the Prince of Egypt. Many of us know what happens here. And we need to heed the warning that comes from the example of Pharaoh. He's given this warning, isn't he? We hope, we assume that he had heard about the Hebrew people's God. We know without a doubt as the story continues that he does in fact hear who this one and only sovereign God is. Yet he refuses all the way until the death to assert his own sovereignty. This brings us to point number three, the king's frustration and inability to stop the hand of God. 
This is point number three. The king's frustration and inability to stop the hand of God. Even though Pharaoh oppresses the people of God and tries to stop the hand of God, Exodus 1 and 2 says he cannot. Pharaoh is completely unable to stop. He can do whatever he wants to, but God fulfills all of his promises. I mean, who rises up when the all-powerful Pharaoh wants to exterminate the baby boys? I mean, who takes a stand? It's the midwives. It's the midwives by the names of Shipra and Pua. These are not women of great standing. They are Hebrew slave women frustrating the persecution of the Pharaoh. And the people really did see Pharaoh as almighty. You really need to see this as a head-to-head battle. The sovereign king of Egypt going against the sovereign god of all creation. That's what's going on here. The people saw Pharaoh as almighty. Egyptian culture saw their gods like Ra as almighty, sovereign. And given they thought Pharaoh was the incarnation of Ra, therefore Pharaoh was almighty. So they thought. But here at the beginning of Exodus, you have these Hebrew midwives, slave women, frustrating the plans of the great earthly Pharaoh. We have a lesson for us as Christians, don't we, how to, in terms of how to survive the cultural landslide when the culture moves against God and his people. We follow the example of the midwives. We fear God and not man. How is it that Shipra and Pua stand after Pharaoh orders them to kill all the baby boys? Look there in verse 17. But the midwives feared God and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. And there was such significance here. I mean, there stands Shipra and Pua, the lowly midwives and Foreigners in a foreign land being commanded by the greatest earthly authority of the greatest earthly kingdom at the time to kill the babies. And they do not submit. Why is it? It's because they answer to a heavenly authority. But the midwives feared God. They submit to the sovereign God and creator of all things. And that is his name here as it describes them. The the midwives feared God. The Hebrew name for God there is Elohim, which points us right back to Genesis chapter 1. The same name for God is used. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. It is that God whom they submit to, and so they did not, therefore, submit to the king of Egypt as he commanded them. Because you have just an earthly king going against the sovereign creator God who created all things in heaven and on earth. Some of you guys might fear standing for Christ in your own workplaces, standing for Christ in your neighborhoods, standing for Jesus Christ and his gospel in your very own families. And we are instructed by our dear sisters, Shipra and Pua, aren't we? To fear God and not man. That's how you survive a a cultural shift. Trust in God. Mark never puts it this way. There has never been a set of circumstances Christians cannot trust God through. Of course not. Because he is our sovereign creator God. He is God over all our circumstances. And so therefore we can indeed entrust all of our circumstances to him. As the midwives trust God here, doesn't it work to highlight The impotency of Pharaoh. As these two little midwives, Hebrew slaves, 
trust in God and highlights in this story the impotency of Pharaoh and then the sovereignty of God. We have here, right here, in these handful of verses, 15 to 22, and then, of course, going on to chapter 2, we have here a little sort of highlight, a foreshadowing of what exactly is going to happen in the rest of the book of Egypt in terms of who is going to come through and who is going to be destroyed. Because we see there, that look there in verse 20, so God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families, because he's, de- he's determined to see his promises be fulfilled. Trusting in God works to highlight the impotency of all of the evil folks, those who stand behind evil and highlight the sovereignty of God. It did with Jesus Christ. As he trusted in his Father in heaven for the joy set before him, Hebrew says, Christ went to the cross. As he died, his crucifixion gave the appearance that Satan actually held the power of death. But then as he was raised, Satan was stripped of his authority and made a fool. Friend, Christ is our example here. Shipra and Pua are our examples of fearing God and entrusting to God all of our earthly circumstances. And therefore, instructing, instructing the powers that be that our God reigns in heaven and on earth. Pharaoh would have done well to pay attention to the midwives as their lives were a testimony to the fact that our God, their God, is the only sovereign God who deserves all allegiance as he is sovereign creator over all. But it isn't only the midwives who contribute to the frustration of Pharaoh's plans. We saw how the midwives do that. And now we see there in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2, we see that there's actually a whole cohort involved in standing against Pharaoh's devices. The main topic of the verses is the birth of Moses, the rise of Israel's future leader. At the close of chapter 1, our attention is on all of the baby boys, right, because they are all supposed to be put to death. But then not in chapter 2. Now our attention shifts to one particular baby boy and the circumstances around his birth and then his upbringing. Moses himself will frustrate the plans of Pharaoh, no doubt. We see this in upcoming weeks. But for now, notice the people involved in Moses' birth and upbringing. Look there, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. I'll go ahead and read that now. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And she could hide him no longer. She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch basically tar she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river banks and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him now the daughter of pharaoh came down to bathe and at the river while her young woman walked beside her she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it and when she opened it she saw the child and behold the baby was crying she took pity on him and said this is one of the hebrews children Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call to you a nurse from the Hebrew women and nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. Did you notice that all of the people involved here in the birth of Moses and his upbringing 
Apart from the man who marries a woman from the house of Levi, all of them are women, with the exception of that one man. Verse 2, you look there. The woman conceived and bore a son. Verse 3. When she could hide him no longer, she goes and hides him. And what she does is she builds this little ark, and the word is used for an ark, just as it was for, just as it was for Noah. So here you have salvation uh, coming to the people of God through somebody in an ark going through the water. And then she goes on, she puts the child in it. Then in verse 4, it talks about his sister, that is Moses' sister, Miriam. Well, she stands at a distance watching in concern. You look there in verse number 5, now the daughter of Pharaoh, the princess of Egypt, she goes and she calls a servant girl to go and bring the baby who's crying. Verse number 7, Goes back to Miriam. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, you know, she devises this plan. Shall I go and, and, and grab somebody to nurse the child for you? And then she goes on and she grabs the mother. She, she's attentive there. She's compassionate. Verse number eight. Then Pharaoh's daughter said, yes, go and do these things. And then verse number nine. And then Miriam, uh, she goes and brings Moses back to the prince of Egypt, where Pharaoh's daughter, sorry, the princess of Egypt, where Pharaoh's daughter gives Moses the name Moses. So you have here this whole cohort of people defying Pharaoh and even one of his very own daughters. Pharaoh cannot control this. His enslavement is ineffective. His murderous policies, they all fail. And one from his very own family participates in the deliverance of a Hebrew baby boy. Of course, as Christians, we know that according to Psalm 33, verse 10, the Lord brings the council of nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. This is exactly what King Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way after he too tried to squash God's people. Many centuries later, comparing man's power to God's power, this is what he has to say. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Sadly for Pharaoh, in whatever earthly power he possessed, you know, he chose to rebel against the only sovereign God only to find out that God is the one who delegated his power. And he is the one who gets crushed. Something that must be addressed from this passage is the juxtaposition of hostility and compassion you see here this comparison of hostility and compassion i hope you noted the compassion here <clears throat> specifically the compassion of the women i think friends that this is a beautiful beautiful com- picture of compassion and you see it in the midwives they fear the god of life and therefore they fight for the baby's lives and then god blesses them for their own godliness he gives them families of their own You see this in Moses' mother. She's just unnamed here in chapter 2. She's just called the the, the woman. She goes about caring for her healthy child, her strong child, her fine child. She hid him as best she could for three months. And then she wants to see him live. And then Moses' sister, probably not a grown woman, she there is standing by the wayside watching the ark sit in the reeds. It's not like she's sending him off to die, sort of going down the river, the Nile River. No, she's seeing him set there in the reeds, seeing, making sure that someone will find him. And then there's compassion by Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 6, she saw the basket among the reeds, 
has her servant bring the, the, the ark to her. And then what does it say? When she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the baby was crying and took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Though well aware of her father's policies, no doubt, she nevertheless thinks and acts out of compassion. She has pity on the child. While this passage is primarily about the birth of Moses, it does have some bearing on biblical femininity, doesn't it? <clears throat> what is amazing here in the actions of all of the women, women involved is that they are human agents used to save the day for Moses and then save the day for all of Israel. So what saves the day is their God-designed biblical femininity, isn't it? I mean, they really are flexing biblical femininity here. You've got the midwives who are giving themselves to birthing children which only women can birth children, and typically women delight in seeing other women give birth to children. Men typically want to stay on the other side, or perhaps even out of the room, not having anything to do with what's going on there. But it's the women who desire to see the babies born, and who have compassion on them, and stand against the greatest earthly king, no matter what they risk. Yet here they are, Shipran Pua. You see Moses' mother flexing biblical femininity, giving birth to her child and caring for him and ensuring then that he is safe. You have the same thing going on with all of the women here. God designed femininity. In it, they exercise compassion in a uniquely womanly way, friends. You see this here? They care about the flourishing of life in a way that men generally do not. I'm not saying that men don't care. I'm saying that women have a unique ability, a capacity to do this. In this story, it is the women who possess wombs, or women in general, you know, they possess wombs for the development of life. And so then they're seen to exercise compassion over life. And the women here are seen as strong women. They are tenacious women, God-fearing women who stand against the greatest earthly man and superpower because they fear the God of life. They hear a cooing baby. And they insist that they must resist the commands of their king. In fact, the commands of their father. This example is what our coming generations need, isn't it? A robust vision of godly femininity. Godly Christians, female Christians who come to the aid of the helpless. Godly Christian women who fear the God of life, which then produces... A great care for life? This is something that you gals are uniquely situated, uniquely created for as daughters of Eve, the mother of the living. The church today needs more shipras and puas who will be remembered for fearing the God of life and therefore protecting life while risking their own. I mean, isn't it beautiful? That shipra and we got no idea who these people are. Yet forever their names are etched into scripture, so to speak, forever. As God's word stands forever. We have Shipram here teaching Pharaoh who the true king is. So men, you're looking for a wife. What is it that you value? Things that will one day fade away? Or stuff that we see here. Biblical, godly femininity. 
that lasts into the ages. Friends, brothers, you want to look for a Shipra and Pua yourself. Women of God who fear God and not man. Uh, gals, let me suggest, let's say, you know, for the next gals social event, let me encourage you to schedule a time to visit the local crisis pregnancy center in La Puente, which is called Options, a women's care center. You can visit there and see what exactly they do to help women understand that there are options in pregnancy. Uh, you know, abortion is certainly one, not by God's design, certainly against God's design, and there are other options. You can get to know the organization which we have supported financially in the past. You can be educated yourself in order to learn how to talk to your friends who might be considering abortion. You can talk about God's will, the choice of life over the choice of death. And then after visiting and praying, perhaps you can think about volunteering there, maybe as a testimony to the fact that you fear the God of life. Friends, you gals right here too, some of you might even know friends or even go through this experience where you yourself have chosen death over life. The wonderful things is, is that God is a gracious and forgiving God. And he is such a God of life that he even extends the promise of eternal life to those who go against his will in rebelling against him. And so he shows his grace and his kindness even to those who have had abortions. As I'm sure many of us have known many who then come to see their sin according to the word of God and then come to know the grace and kindness and love of God in the gospel. Forgiveness for all. Well, continuing on to see who frustrates the plans of Pharaoh. We're looking at hostility and compassion. Here we come to Moses. Moses himself frustrates the plans of Pharaoh all by God's grace. As the story goes on, Moses uses him big time to frustrate Pharaoh's murderous plans. But if we could just pretend for a moment that we don't know what will happen to Moses or how God will use him in the future... We see there in chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, we see very much that Moses' heart is a heart of compassion and strength. This is Israel's future leader. We don't quite know this yet. We will know it in next week, but not quite yet. But we see him too as a man of compassion and strength. Verses 11 to 15 speak about a time when Moses saw his own people's burdens and was moved to action. Verse 11 says that he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. It says they're one of his own people. That's significant. And then he rose up to defend the Hebrew. Unfortunately, he does commit an act of violence. He ends up murdering the Egyptian. Uh, you know, one could read this as Moses's. One could read of Moses's murder here as an act of heroism. But I think this is incorrect. In verse twelve, it says there Moses looks that way and this way, meaning that this he wants this to be done in secret. Not only that, though, but he buries the Egyptian man's body in the desert, meaning they're also in secret. Uh, but here, this is an act of sin. But nevertheless, what's important to highlight is that Moses, who grew up in the house of Pharaoh, experiencing all the blessings that Pharaoh's house had to offer, he chooses rather to identify with the Hebrew people. This is a big deal. This is what will get him killed in a moment. Because now he's going against Pharaoh's laws. It says that the next day he goes out and he, and he sees a Hebrew person fighting with another Hebrew. Moses intervenes here too. And though he is a sinner, he does what 
he, he does seem to, uh, to aim for equity. There in 13, he speaks to the guilty party, as these two Hebrews are now fighting. And here he's met with disdain, uh, a disdain that foreshadows the disdain that Israel had towards him. Verse 14, the Hebrew says there, the man who was at fault says, Who made you prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So it looks like his secret is not so secret. And then in verse 14, then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. Some commentators think here that what Moses is primarily concerned about is his own guilt. I don't think this is the case here. I side with other commentators that think Moses is concerned about Pharaoh, about Pharaoh will, will do when he finds out that Moses now sides once again with the Hebrew people, the people of God. It means that he aligns himself not with the house of Pharaoh, but instead the, the Hebrew people, the people that Pharaoh wants to kill. So in verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. But his compassion continues as we're just kind of going a uh, 30,000 foot view of, of uh, these chapters here. In 16 to 22, it tells of a story of a priest of Midian and his seven daughters. They, they all went out to water their, their father's flock, but sort of ruffian shepherds come alongside and give them a hard time and then they're driven off. Verse 17, it says that his shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them. So he saw that he stood up and was, uh, he stood up for the Hebrew that was getting beaten for the Egyptian. We saw that he stood up and was fighting for equity. And here we see that he, was, he stood up and was fighting for the helpless. The priest is so impressed that eventually, after a stay, he gives his daughter Zipporah to Moses as his wife, where they then begin a family. You know, all of this compassion that we see from people, we're left wondering, where is the compassion of God in all of this? You can look there at verses 20 and 21. We see there, once again, compassion given. But we ask, where is the compassion of God? People are looking out. People are watching. We've got the midwives watching. We've got all the ladies watching. We've even got the priest of Midian watching. We've got Moses watching. But where is God watching? All the women who act to save life and Moses, whom God will deliver to the Hebrews, their compassion actually is a reflection of God's compassion. And all of the actions that we see going on here in 400 plus years that have gone on, where Israel was, Israel and his family was in Egypt. God, nevertheless, is acting. He is watching. It's evidence of his compassion that these people are compassionate. And as we read of their compassion, we have to remember that God is a God who fulfills all of his promises. Just as he promised to make Abraham's descendant into a people, so he is fulfilling it. We who have read Genesis know that even though we might forget that God is here, he is nevertheless with us. So we see that God is being compassionate, bringing about Israel's future leader. This is why after so much prologue, after reading about Pharaoh and his hostility, after reading about all of the compassion from Shipra and Pua, Moses' mother and sister, Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter of Egypt, and then Moses himself, our attention is turned to God, who is sovereign over all Look there at 2, 23 and 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. 
And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Such poetic verses, isn't it? God is not really seen to be doing too much in chapters 1 and 2, except except for granting the midwives families of their own. But yet here, let's be very clear, Moses wants us to know, in the worst situations, the enslavements, murder, persecution, God is nevertheless watching. You see those verbs there. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant. Not in that he forgot and then therefore needs to be reminded as if he forgets. But no, it means here that he exercises steadfast love to those he makes a covenant with. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all their descendants, all who have the faith of Abraham, that is us, us today. It says there that God saw the people of Israel. One commentator said it's better to see this as, uh, better to read this as seeing God saw. Seeing God saw. He sees. So let's be encouraged as he continues to see. He saw the people of Israel and God knew. It's stunning, isn't it? To see Elohim, the creator God over all, who made the heavens and the earth so attentive to his people's cries for help. So present to see their suffering. So knowledgeable to never let his covenant fall. So gracious and merciful, where even we who are sinners who receive his covenant promises turn away from him, yet in his mercy he commits again and again and again to seeing us embrace deliverance. This is why we're directed to what God is doing here in verses 23 to 25 of chapter 2. God is present. You know, these verses, these verbs actually, they rocket forward the story of the Exodus. So if you turn over one chapter, you go to chapter 3, a lot of these verses come up again, and even where they, and then they're expanded. You look there at verse 7, or actually go back to verse 6, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them. That's game over right there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 2. Game over. He hears, he remembers, he sees, he knows. And then he says, I have come down. Well, we have seen God's faithfulness to form for himself a new people for his glory. We see this in Israel's expansion. We see it in Israel's oppression by the king even. And then the events that happen there. We see it in point number three, the king's frustration and inability to stay the hand of God. But yet we know that God is always working, even in times of difficulty, even in times of persecution. What he promises, he will fulfill. Christians, though we have not been delivered from a slavery from Pharaoh, nevertheless, it is these verbs in Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3 there, specifically 2, 23 to 25, he heard, he remembered, he saw, he knew, he has come down in verse in chapter 3. It is these verbs that mean the world to us, don't they? Because this is what God has done for us as he delivers us out of a slavery from sin, which is what David was talking about earlier. For those who cry out to God in repentance, friends, God hears 
your cry for mercy. And out of his own steadfast love, he is faithful to save all of his children. And so he remembers his covenant of grace. He sees our plight as we are but dust. And he knows our need for a deliverer. And so, friends, he comes down in the person of Jesus Christ. He sends his son to be specific. Jesus Christ, who lives a perfect life. He lives a life that we could not. He dies the death we should have. He sends his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for sins, bearing the wrath and the judgment that we deserved. He knows we are but dust, and he knows that we cannot do it. We cannot bear it and live. And so he sends Christ to deliver us. Friends, this Exodus story ultimately points us to a deliverance that we have in Jesus Christ. We were already introduced to the... The parallels, do you see there? In chapter 1, Pharaoh seeks to kill all the Hebrew baby boys, just as Herod seeks to kill all the baby boys in Matthew chapter 2. Just as God sends to his people a compassionate, strong leader in Moses, so he sends to his people a leader greater than Moses, one who has never sinned. The compassionate Christ to rescue sinners from their own hostility against God. And in him there is salvation. If you are a non-Christian again, as you join us for Exodus, I pray that you do not read this account about a distant people's Exodus from slavery. And you think that has nothing to do with us today? I pray that you would read it and listen to it, knowing that just as Christ delivered them from a physical slavery, so he can deliver you from a spiritual slavery. If you would turn from your sins and believe on God. Friends, you will know the compassion of God found in Jesus Christ. This Exodus story actually is used throughout the Bible and is used for us, meant for us to turn and look at our spiritual deliverance that we are in need of and then turn to the only sovereign God who delivers through Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you are a kind and compassionate and gracious God. We thank you that in your steadfast love, you fulfill all of your promises and you do this to sinners. And Lord, you even extend the offer of salvation and repentance to Pharaoh. As we come to see in future weeks, Lord, that even this killer of babies, you send Moses to tell him, to obey you. And even in that is evidence of your kindness and grace. How we pray that if there are the hard-hearted here today, that you would move according to your spirit to bring them to repentance and faith, that they would see Jesus Christ as the Savior, the merciful one, the one through whom all things were created, and the one for whom all things were created. And Lord, we pray that you would help them see that submission to you is not submission to a taskmaster, but submission to a loving and compassionate God who, according to your word, desires all to be saved and come to a saving knowledge of God. Father, we pray that we would turn to Jesus Christ, the compassionate one. We, would, we pray, Lord, that we would come to see that you are the sovereign God and creator of all things. Lord, we pray for us as Christians. We, we pray that we would... You would help us never pit our wills against yours. 
And so go against the one and only sovereign king. We thank you, Lord, that you have pacified our hearts of hostility and opened our eyes to behold the wonderful things in Jesus Christ's word and his gospel. And most importantly, caused us to see and embrace him. In your name we pray. Amen.